0: I'm continuing on my sermon series, Understanding God, and if you're here for the first time today, you can go to our website, naplesgathering.org, and you can get the first two sessions. I would recommend that you do that. Today, I'm going to speak about the very sovereignty of God, the very right to rule, the authority, the I am. That I am. And so we need to convey the sovereignty of God to a lost world. Uh, And they have no conception really of who God is and his sovereignty. Uh, We have to understand and convey that he was before all things. He created all things. He upholds all things. He is above all things. He knows all things. He accomplishes all things. He rules over all things. And he is in control of all things. Amen, church? And I would say that is why I believe him and trust him and have given him my life. And I believe it's the same reason that you have done the same. He is worthy. He is eternal. He is above all else. Now, one thing God has made crystal clear is that he alone is to be worshipped. He is not just another option. Uh, Think about what God says of himself. uh, And what he says of himself, the major components of God's lordship are control, authority, and covenantal presence. Even the little gods of your life must bow to him. And let me briefly focus on that because so many of us have raised up what I call these little gods, whether it's family or recreation or money or possessions or time, all these little things that take precedence over the worship of God. God is a a jealous God. Uh, And I know Oprah Winfrey didn't like that phrase. But that's because Oprah Winfrey didn't have spiritual discernment. We understand what it means to be a jealous God when, in fact, you created everything. You are in control of everything. And now your creation is worshiping little gods. We must bow before him in every possible way. Bible tells us that God is before all things and that he holds all things together. He brought forth the earth. He is the Alpha and Omega, and he is immortal. Look at Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before the creation... You were God, and you will be God even after the creation comes to an end. And we bow before that. He created all things both in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible. And you know, it's funny, when the Bible was written and those words were uttered, they didn't really understand the invisible creation, but now science does that we know through molecular science we can see all the creation of God down to the very tiniest, tiniest particles. Look at John chapter 1, verse 3, which says, Through him, and that's Jesus in this particular instance, God himself, Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. That's your Lord. That's your God. He upholds all things. He sustains all things. He holds all of creation together, holding it together by his very word. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. He, God, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, meaning the very power of creation. The sun, the moon, the planets, the stars, the asteroids, every aspect of creation, both in the sky and in this world, are held together by the power of God. And, you know, science has now discovered what's called the interstitial uh, power, which is that power that keeps everything together. They don't understand how it works, all right? But I can tell you how it works. Its name is Jesus. And the day will come. The day will come when God will say, let it go. Let it go. And it will let go. And what you see will come to an end. Uh, His divine name, Yahweh, expresses his sovereign rule over against the claim of human kings, such as Pharaoh, and as we're going to study later today, Nebuchadnezzar. His sovereign control Uh, is not impersonal or mechanical, but is the loving and gracious oversight of the king of creation and redemption. And after I've done this prelude and explained all of the very power of God, just think that he holds you in the palm of his hand. Can you imagine a creator that great, that all this would be held together by him, and yet he sees your name in his hand, and he would go to the cross to die for you. That is your God. This is why we worship him, and so I would say to you today as a part of this message, when you bow your head, and you reach out, and you pray to him, and you ask for intervention in your life, are you aware Of whom you are talking to, the one whom you are speaking to has control over the entire universe, yet he loves and cares and sees you in every way. This is why we worship our God. Now, God reveals his sovereignty in several ways. First, clearly, through his titles, they are as follows. I am sovereign, he has said. I am the most high. I am the alpha and omega. I am the king of kings and the lord of lords. And I think my favorite, I am who I am. Isn't that amazing? I am who I am. Where Moses meeting God for the first time and is told, go back Bring your people out of captivity. Go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And he says, well, who shall I say sent me? You say, I am who I am. It's as if the title is there before the creation of language. I am in the beginning. No before, no after. I am who I I am. What an amazing God we have. Now, God also reveals his sovereignty through promises. Look at Romans eight twenty-eight. one of my va- favorite verses in Scripture, uh, and it's on the board. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things work together for good for those that love him. Not just good things, but bad things, questionable things. But when you walk with God, you have the assurance that everything that's going to come into your life is ultimately going to be used by God for your good. This is an amazing promise. Who else in creation can make that promise? He can somehow take the disparate events of our life and yet weave it together in the most incredible blanket that ultimately lifts us up for our own good if we trust and walk with him. Folks, this very church building is the result of Romans 8.28. So many of you know this. So many of you have been here with us for three years. You know what it was like to leave a place where you were not loved, where there was some persecution that took place, and yet as you walked out, not knowing where you would go, you walked in obedience, you served him as he called you, not knowing where you ultimately would be, and yet he gave you this place. Because he loves you, and he cares for you. This is the essence of Romans 8.28 in your own life. Uh, And so he must trust him and walk with him. Only a God that is ultimately that powerful and wise could make such a promise. Now look at the second promise also that comes from worshiping God. And that's found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. And there the scripture says, Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, and the church said, amen, "Amen," is right. Now, how could God make such a promise unless he holds the power over history, that Jesus, would one day be claimed savior over the entire world, that every knee in this world would bow before him. How could that happen? It could only happen when God controls history. And let me tell you, God in his sovereignty does control history. And there will be a day when that takes place. Now, God also demonstrates his sovereignty as the story of history unfolds. And Our worldview is God. Our worldview is Jesus Christ. We believe that ultimately, at the end, God writes the story of history. Now, we see this firsthand in the story of the Hebrew people being relieved from their captivity in Egypt. Look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 19, uh, and it's on the board. And here, God is speaking to Moses preparing Moses for what he will face when he goes back to confront Pharaoh and asking him to let the Hebrew people leave. And there God says, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. There you see the sovereignty of God. He knew that there was a recalcitrant king who would shake his fist at God, but that was of no moment. And so what would happen? Ten plagues would be visited on Egypt in a way that no country ever saw. And finally, the last plague, the, the very last plague, where the, the death angel would come and destroy all of the firstborn of Egypt, yet save the firstborn of the Hebrew people. And it was at that moment that Pharaoh would ultimately let the Jewish people go. Now we see this most clearly in terms of the power of God uh, in the history of Israel. A significant portion uh, of, of what the Jewish people received was because of the powerful miracles of God. Look at what transpired as they left Egypt, look at how they had the sea parted, the Red Sea parts. And here's the amazing thing, and I love it because I'll, I'll read about recalcitrant philosophers who will say, well, they only went through one inch of water, right? Well, then it's an even greater miracle because in that one inch of water, all of Egypt drowned. <laughs> Wake up! Wake up! Where's your head? You understand? And so that's the sovereignty of God, that at one point he will save his people, and yet the evildoers can be instantaneously destroyed. And as he led them through the wilderness, he gave them water, and he gave them food, and then he gave them the Ten Commandments, always displaying his love. And then you see the power and sovereignty of God in the story of Joseph. And I know that in some of your Bible studies, you've been focusing on Joseph. Uh, And God allows Joseph to suffer numerous difficulties and persecutions. Look, what a story this is. Here is this innocent, God-fearing young man who is despised by his family and is sold into slavery. And then as a result of being sold into slavery, he's taken away from his family. They lie to the father saying he was killed. He winds up being put in Potiphar's household and effectively being a slave for years. Now, I want you to think about it as we talk about Romans 8, 28. Do you think at that point Joseph said, well, this is good. (laughs) This is really good. Because I know that in 17 years, I'm going to be the prime minister of Egypt. You see, it doesn't work that way. You understand? That's not the power of God. The power of God says, let me see you walk in submission and humility. Let me see you walk with me, even when you don't understand what is happening to you. And I know there's so many of you out there that are going through this right now that don't know what's happening to you, but I want you to know God is in control. And I want you to know something. There's Joseph serving God, being righteous, and yet what? Potiphar's wife unjustly accuses him of rape. And so now what? He's thrown into prison. Into prison. And there he is in prison. Can you imagine what it had to be like for this godly man? God, What are you doing to me? How can this all be happening to me? I didn't do a thing, and yet I'm cut off. And yet God orchestrated all those events that in those 17 years, and mark it down, 17 years of being cut off from his family, sold into slavery, and then being put into prison, that God would engineer it so that two of the Pharaoh's men would be put into prison and need their dreams interpreted. And Joseph would be that venue. And as a result of that, Joseph would be called to interpret the Pharaoh's dream. And in that interpretation, he warned Pharaoh that they would have seven years of fl- plenty and seven years of famine. And God intervened to put that young man there. And as a result of that, as a result of that Joseph became the prime minister of Egypt. Can you imagine a slave, a Jew, 17 years in captivity, yet God would allow it to come to pass so that he would be the prime minister of Egypt. Now, what happened as a result of that? Certainly we know that God used Joseph to save the Egyptian people, but he also used Joseph to save the Jewish people because as a result of this, Seventy members of Joseph's family, which was the family of Abraham, could come from Cana into Egypt during the famine and survive there. How about that? And they survived there for 400 years. 400 years. And they would multiply to 3 million people. Remember, Television was not yet invented. (laughs) The point of all this, you see, the point of all this is that even while Joseph was in prison, God was fully in control. He is as sovereign with Joseph as he is with you today. He controls your life. He holds you. In destiny, he is putting together all the disparate events of your life for your greater good. I don't care what you're going through, what persecution you are going through, God sees you and God is orchestrating you, and ultimately it will be for your good. I want to point out Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph finally comes face to face with his brothers and they're fearful that they're going to be killed because of what they did. And Joseph says the following, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I like the King James interpretation better. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Write it down. Put it on your refrigerator. Memorize it and understand that in every aspect of your life. Now, God also reveals his sovereignty in prophetic events. Uh, Great examples of this are found in the book of Daniel, chapters 2 and 7, which you can read at home, and in Revelation. Uh, Here, he tells Daniel, uh, through the angel Gabriel, that Babylon is going to fall and after that, the Meso-Persian Empire will fall, and after that, the Greeks will take over, and they will fall, and after that, Rome will take over. How do you like that? He gave him hundreds of years of historical prophecy telling him everything that would take place that would affect the Jewish people. Uh, He lays out hundreds of years of prophecy laying out his sovereignty. The Bible is also the revealed word of God. One third of the Bible is considered to be prophetic. And we know that there were several hundred prophecies fulfilled in Christ's birth and life. God wants you to know that you can take his word to the bank. God doesn't expect you to believe him on blind faith. That's how great your God is. He could say, take it on faith, but he doesn't. He gives you every reason to know that what he says is true. Jesus himself fulfilled hundreds of prophecies regarding the day he was born, the place he was born, the mother that he would have, uh, the kind of woman she would be, the kind of death he would have, and in fact, the kind of resurrection that he would have. All of it prophetically indicated by the Bible. A thousand years before his birth. This proves again that God is sovereign, that he can sit there and make that sovereign determination about what will happen down the road. And here's the other thing, even the sovereign determination that Jesus would go to the cross and die and make no mistake about it. It was within the full will of God that Jesus go to the cross and die. And one of the things that I love about the scriptures is that verse, uh, I believe it's in Matthew, where Jesus is arrested uh, and Peter has taken out his sword uh, to defend him. And Jesus said, put your sword away. Put your sword away. Don't you realize that if I called upon God, ten legions of angels would come? How about that? Think about your God being on the cross, knowing that just at a word, thousands of angels would have descended and wiped out Rome, and yet Jesus submitted to the will of God. That is your sovereign God. What an amazing God we have. What an amazing story it is. Now, Jesus himself identified himself clearly as the sovereign king in Matthew 28, verse 18. He said, There, then Jesus came to them and said, and this is just before he would ascend to heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. And then sovereignty of God is also evidenced by the resurrection. This cuts through everything else in the world of religion. There's no other religion in which we can say that our Savior was resurrected from death after being put in the ground for three days. Look, He remained on the earth after the resurrection for 40 days and was witnessed by over 500 eyewitnesses. Paul delineates the names of the eyewitnesses. 500 people saw Jesus walk around, defying the rules of science, defying death itself. All of this, you see, all of this is a historical fact and demonstrates the authority of Jesus Christ as God. This is the crowning glory of the sovereignty of God. Now, this raises an important question for us as Christians. If God is really sovereign, if he is really in control of all things, why does he allow pain and suffering? I know you've been asked that question. I'm sure some of you have thought that question. Why did he not stop suffering before it even began? Well, there's no simple, easy way to answer that profound question. The first answer is that all of creation fell in the Garden of Eden. Uh, God gave us free will, and let's understand that. God gave you free will. God gave you the right to reject him and the right to accept salvation, free will. And so there in the Garden of Eden, man shook his, fit, his fist at God and rejected God and embraced Satan and sin entered the world. And as a result of that, all of creation, not just us, all of the creation experienced death. And as you know, all the weather systems and the tsunamis and the very aspects of living in this world that take the lives of millions of people every day, effectively come about because of sin. Yes, God is absolutely in control and sovereign. Yet, we, as human beings, did our best to thwart his plan. Yet, the Bible teaches us we are free moral agents to make our own decisions. Those decisions that we make and that your family members make will affect eternity. God's control is always efficacious. Nothing can prevent him from accomplishing his purpose, even when it relates to bringing down a madman. And I want to show you this story to show you the sovereign power of God. And it relates to Nebuchadnezzar. And you understand Nebuchadnezzar. There he is at the height of his power, the king of Babylon, the greatest power in the world. And he's sitting there and walking through his gardens, you know, those incredible seven wonders of the world, hanging gardens of Babylon. And he's sitting there and the Bible says, yes. Oh, I am king. I am powerful. Look at everything that I have. And as those words came out of his mouth, as he was raising those words out of his mouth, God heard it and God struck him down and God demanded that he would spend seven years of his life wandering around as an animal in the forest. His hair would grow long. His fingernails would grow long. He would would not look like a human being. But look what he says after those seven years. You'll see it on the board in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth Are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the power of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? Ladies and gentlemen, this is a pagan speaking. This is a pagan who's been impacted by God. This is a man who destroyed Israel, who destroyed the temple, who took the Jewish people into captivity. And yet, under the powerful hand of God, recognizing the sovereignty of God, he now bows before the throne of God and accept God as his Savior. And I want to tell you something, and most theologians agree with me, that when you get to heaven, Nebuchadnezzar will be there. This is, a, this is the statement of a saved man. And so what is the practical application of all this for us today in terms of understanding the sovereignty of God? Well, first, the first practical application is this. We must all submit to God. Every one of us bow in submission to him in every aspect of our life. We must surrender everything we have to him. This means your time, your talent, your money, your possessions, your family, your career, everything has to be placed on the throne of God. And I'm going to say this to you because I love you. And if you don't do that, you're putting yourself in a position where God will say, well, you know what? Maybe you need a little message. Maybe you need a little message about who really is God. You don't want that to happen. Instead, you want Him to say, I love you. you want to say, I love you. And I worship you in every possible way. And so we want to do that. Second, nothing can come before him in our lives. Nothing. Nothing. He comes first in every aspect of your life. Third, believe that all that comes into your life is either allowed or decreed by a good God who will use it for your benefit. Look at the example of Joseph. 17 years in slavery. You don't think he said enough is enough? Enough is enough, but here's the thing. No, it wasn't enough. Because if you were just a house slave for Potiphar, you would never get to be the prime minister. No, I have to send you to prison. And while you're there, you need to meet a couple of other guys. All of this is within the all-powerful sovereignty of God. And the same thing counts for you today in your life. Everything as you walk with God will ultimately be used for your good from the beginning to the end. We should be very conscious of this, uh, that he will use it for your benefit. He will make you greater. He will make you greater and will find a greater use for your gifts. Look, we have to remember that salvation is God's work from beginning to end. It's all about him. We had nothing to do with salvation. But understanding that when we were lost, we bowed and said, I need a savior. And at that moment, as we bowed and reached up to God, he reached across eternity and he saved us. And there it is. He controls creation. And as he controls creation, he controls salvation. And finally, behold in awe and majesty, the very, very sovereign rule of God, And we don't do this very often. We don't look around us at what we're surrounded by and say it's the will of God, it's the majesty of God. When we do, it will prompt us to even more worship him. Look at Romans 11, uh, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. All things from him. Every created thing. Everything that you have in your life, your intellect, your talent, your family, your money, your possessions, your status, the very fact that you're sitting here in a church that he created and put together for us, all of this is a result of the sovereignty of God. Nobody sits there with God and negotiates and says, I'll give you this if you do that. I mean, think about how nonsensical that is as you bow before the God of creation, the very God who created you. And so let us reflect on that this week as we ask him to make a more meaningful statement in our lives, knowing what he has done for us, knowing how he has called us, and remembering that everything we go through as we walk with him is covered by him. You think of Joseph, you think of Joseph uh, and recognize that God will lift you up and elevate you and raise you in the most powerful way. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the message that you've given us on the sovereignty of you, Father. We bow before your will, recognizing that you are Lord of all, that you are sovereign, that you have created everything. You are the Alpha and the Omega. And Lord, forgive us if at times we forget. And forgive us that when we come to you and pray to you, we don't honor you with those titles. But help us, God, to remove all of the small gods in our life and to put you first in every way. Elevate you in every way, in every aspect of our life. Put you first so that in every place that we go, every statement that we make, you come first. Let us deliver this message to a lost world, Father. Let us leave here and tell the world, you are God. Amen.